When someone you love loses their ability to make sound decisions, whether it's a financial decision, changing a will, or getting married, when this happens, what do you do? Who do you turn to? Well, more than likely, you, or a court in many cases, like my wonderful guest on this episode, Donna Bogdanovich. Moving your mom or your dad or yourself isn't just about moving things from one place to another. It is much more complicated than that, as are so many things having to do with later life. How to move your mom and still be on speaking terms afterward provides in-depth conversations with professionals, older adults, and their family members who share their stories with warmth, understanding, and humor. I'm your host, Marty Stevens-Hebner, and here you'll find answers to many of your questions, as well as different perspectives that I hope will inform and inspire you. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here because so many people hear the word fiduciary and they don't know what that is. And so I'm glad you'll be explaining what you do and then also talking about this subject of capacity. So let me tell you a little bit about Donna. Donna Bogdanovich is a licensed professional fiduciary who specializes in administering special needs trusts, irrevocable and revocable trusts, conservatorships, and case management. And we'll talk about those terms in just a few minutes. Donna primarily works with clients and families where there is an occurrence of mental illness and where there's a great amount of family discord. Donna is also a terrific speaker when it comes to both those topics, and I'm lucky to have her here today. Donna, I like to start out asking professionals like you, what's your favorite memory of your grandparents? My grandparents are from Scotland, so I didn't see them all that much, but my grandpa would go out grocery shopping and buy me my favorite potato chips, and my grandma would play cards with me. Or crisps, as they call potato chips, right? Am I right on that? (laughs) That's that's great. I love potato chips, too. So now, what does a fiduciary do? A fiduciary, the best way to think about it is we're a smaller version of a trust company. We fiduciaries do smaller cases. We are licensed through the state of California. You have to have continuing education every year. The test to pass is pretty tough. Pass rates 50%. I passed the first time because I took it very seriously. At the beginning of this industry. I've got colleagues that take $50 million cases, $20 million cases, and a fiduciary does people that get social security insurance. So they're either mentally ill or they have a disability or they got in an accident and there's money either through an award or a grandparent or a parent gives them money. And so they will not be able to get their monthly benefits if they have this chunk of money. So they put it into a special needs trust, which they don't have the control. It's irrevocable. So that means they can't change it. No terms can be changed, nothing, only the trustee. And they can keep their monthly benefits and then they can be supplemented. Revocable trusts are when the trustor, when the person that writes the trust is still alive, but they just don't want to take care of it anymore. They'll bring someone like us in. As long as you can still change the terms of the trust, that's revocable. And sometimes fiduciaries are there for that. And then once the trustor dies, then it becomes irrevocable. You can't change the terms of the trust. And a lot of times we're brought in to administer that trust too. 
I've heard the term is somebody has a fiduciary responsibility. What does that mean? Fiduciary responsibility is a responsibility to the client to protect the client and to make financial decisions that best helps the client or is the best interest of the client. Yeah, and the best interest of the client. And it usually has to do primarily with funds, with money. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, really aren't capable mentally, also with dementia, not able to make sound decisions about financial situations and that. And that doesn't just include buying something. It also includes things like getting married. And we hear these stories about older people getting married to much younger people and beneficiaries and family members having big questions about that. If a client is a conservator, our fiduciary duty obviously is to money, but it's Mm -hmm. also in the best interest of a client. So for example, if a client wants to stay in their home, but they need extra help rather than go into say an assisted living and they don't want to go, our fiduciary duty is to the client and their best interest and to keep them say in the least restrictive environment. Fiduciaries in California have a money and a person or a case duty to help our clients. So we call it conservatorships in California. Is there another term maybe that's used elsewhere? Guardianships. There you go. Guardianships are in every other state. I used to do a lot of work in Washington and it's a guardianship there. In California, I believe it's under 18 is a guardianship. Over 18 is the conservatorship. Oh, interesting. I didn't know about that distinction. Now, I imagine that frequently you're working with people who may have some sort of cognitive impairment, whether it's brain damage from an accident or something like dementia. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And can you provide us with a definition, more or less, of what capacity is in legal terms, but kind of in layman's language so everybody understands? Capacity (laughs) is the ability to do something, complete a task, and understand it. There are three different capacities that you can look at. There's the capacity to get married, which is the lowest level of capacity. The next level of capacity is called testamentary capacity, whether you have the sound mind to make changes of trust and you understand the implications. So for example, if you're wanting to disinherit a daughter, do you understand all the ramifications of that? Or if you want to add somebody, do you understand the ramifications of that? And then the last or the highest level is contract capacity. Are you able to make a contract? If you own a business and you want to rent property, do you understand the ramifications of the rental? Do you understand what you have to do or enter into any other type of contract? That's the highest level of capacity needed. I did not know about the different levels of capacity for different situations. What's fascinating to me is that wills and trusts are also documents that need to be signed. And that's not also the highest level of capacity, or at least on the same level as signing a contract. Do you have any idea why that is? This is my guess, is Mm -hmm. contractual liability or entering into a contract affects somebody else. And if I entered into a contract with you and I didn't have capacity and my rent was a thousand a month, you counted on that money to do whatever you want to do with that. Or you 
counted on me to keep your apartment or your office space up to code or clean or inhabitable. There are plenty of mechanisms that if we feel that the person did not have capacity or under undue influence, there's plenty of remedies to change it to rectify the situation. And until a person dies and a beneficiary is expecting the money, there's really no harm, no foul until it gets all straightened out. That's very interesting. Why is it such a tricky thing to determine if someone has capacity? It is a tricky thing. We, in our fiduciary world, we go to the experts. There are three or four psychologists in the Southern California area that are really good at determining capacity. So we defer to them. Obviously, if you work in this industry, like me, you can kind of tell when somebody's slipping or mm-hmm. doesn't have capacity. We have our own little preliminary tests that we give. And if we think, oh, they don't have capacity, then we bring in the professionals. And it can take two to four hours of a conversation and testing on multiple days to determine capacity. There's kind of a window during the day when someone who has cognitive impairment can function quite well. We call it the sundowning effect. Later in the day, it really starts to slip because of fatigue or what have you. In the middle of the day, people can quote, perform. Exactly. And that's another thing that we fiduciaries look at. If we want a trust amended, or if we want to talk to our beneficiaries or our trustors, and they have sundowners, we always make a point of seeing them in the morning up until about lunchtime. That window, they're clear. What are some of the nightmare episodes you've experienced or heard about regarding capacity? Oh, I do a lot of work in West LA and Beverly Hills because that enables me to afford to do a lot of pro bono work. So I've had very rich females and males want to get married, want to change their trust instrument in favor of their new wives or the workout buddy, the trainer that kind of thing, caregiver. I've heard of a lot of men that have been a captain of industry will try and control their family with their inheritance, especially if it's larger. Their family, they have to do exactly what the dad says or even the mom says, or else they get written out of the will or the trust. I've had trustors do 10 amendments to their trust because they like their daughter, they don't like their daughter, they don't like Uh that kind of stuff. they have enough money to go to their lawyers and have the amendments completed. Yikes. That is a nightmare scenario. Good God. What do you wish people knew about what you do? I wish that they knew that we existed. I agree completely. A lot of people don't know what we do and what the capabilities of what we can do. There are a lot of people that have chosen now to become fiduciaries that have great and unusual experience. I have a colleague that specializes in real estate and he can deal with complicated leases and that kind of thing. People don't know about that stuff. And I'm trying to get the word out more that we can deal with the mentally ill. I wish people knew our services and what we can do for people and how a lot of times it's better 
to have a fiduciary rather than family discord and having the daughter or the nephew or somebody else administer the trust. Because it's kind of like the fiduciary, unfortunately, becomes the enemy of all because the person in charge of the finances holds the purse strings. That's why it's great to have a professional, basically a neutral third party who everyone can be frustrated with, unfortunately for you and other fiduciaries. All the fiduciaries I know have really thick skin. People don't like us. We do what we're supposed to do. And I have a client right now that's mad at me because I won't buy her $2,000 with a brand new China dishes. Oh, Yeah. We fiduciaries get together a lot and we don't talk necessarily about cases, but that's kind of our support system. So it doesn't matter that the families are mad at us or don't like us. We do what we're supposed to do. We follow our probate codes and our laws. It's all in the best interest of the client. Spending $2,000 on China, and she probably always has at least one China set. Real sets, yes. (laughs) Three Chinas. There you go. She likes China. But yeah, that's not the wisest investment of $2,000. And so you're really thinking about the best interest of the client there. I think that's what makes it easier for us because we always do think about the best interest of the client. And so as a fiduciary, that kind of helps me sleep at night because I know I've got the best interest of the clients in my Mm -hmm. mind when I'm doing things and making decisions. I don't think people realize you often have to explain yourself in court why you made certain decisions, correct? Absolutely. And what's interesting is there's a set of judges in LA and a lot of times they rotate in from other departments and they rotate out. So you almost have to educate some judges on why you do things and what you do. So we fiduciaries are very clear, very well documented. And so if we go to court and they don't quite understand it, we can explain it completely. Even if your clients don't like your explanation, the judge probably will. Yes. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear you have a support system. It's interesting because I find that people like us who work in the, for lack of a better term, the senior sector, or as you said, where people have a lack of capacity for one reason or another, or are in fragile circumstances, there's a real collegiality between people who are in the same industry. I know that's true in the senior move management industry and professional organizers. And as you just said, yeah, you fiduciaries, you have your own support group. Thank goodness. Yeah, we do. And it's interesting because we have the Professional Fiduciary Association, which most of us belong to. We have regional meetings. We have city meetings like Long Beach City and LA. And we just finished our conference last week. And there's a lot of time for us to get together and to talk and hash out questions and concerns. What would you do in this case? And that kind of stuff. There's a lot of support within our industry. It just came to me that because some areas aren't well-defined, one doctor might say somebody has capacity, another doctor might not. Thank goodness you have people to say, okay, I'm I'm in this situation. What would you do? do Or what do you think? And just talk it through. You can't make impulse decisions as a fiduciary. Right. You don't. And you have a well thought out plan. You usually on each case have a global plan. And then when situations come up, then there's specifics that have to be taken care of and looked at and things like that. We always have the best interest of the clients, even if they don't think we do. (laughs) And you have to because you have a legal responsibility. What is the toughest part of your job? I think dealing with beneficiaries who have never been told no. 
Oh, as, as one of my friends would say, they've been yesed to death. Yes, that's correct. Especially in the mental health arena. And the more funds and more assets the family has, they don't want to deal with the, the stark reality and say no to things. So I have to come in and say no. And that word is so foreign to them. So I think that's the hardest thing. It's not the rules. It's not the probate codes. It's not that we go to conferences and classes and we get all the updates and we have a probate code book that we can follow. And after a while, you know what you do and what you don't do. But if you get a beneficiary that's never been told no, that's the hardest time. They call and scream at you and you have thick skin, so that's fine. It's the human interaction that can be the toughest at times. It's important to be licensed as a professional fiduciary. You definitely want to look for that. But can anyone become a fiduciary? How can you tell that someone really has their bona fides? So there are a few things. First of all, to even be considered to take the license, there are classes that you have to take. And I can't remember, it's been a while. I think you have to take three or four classes. There's about eight of them that are offered. I took all eight and a lot of fiduciaries take all eight just so you can have an understanding of every section. And three years of working with a fiduciary. And then if you do not have any degree, then you have to have five years of experience working with a fiduciary. But the thing that I would like people to understand is a lot of fiduciaries specialize in different things. So for example, if you had a trust that had a business to be maintained or rental property, you wouldn't want to come to me. I'll get a rental agent in there to help, but I'm not going to run a business. I have a business degree undergrad. I have a master's in counseling, but I also have a, an accounting degree. So I can technically run a business for six months. That's not what I choose to do. On the other hand, I specialize in a lot of families that don't get along. A lot of fiduciaries don't want to do that or mentally ill or somebody that's severely in dementia. I'll do dementia, but the ones that are at the final stages, I won't do. So it's best if people are looking for a fiduciary, interview the fiduciaries to see if that's their strength. So that would be a key question to ask. What other questions should people be asking a fiduciary when they're interviewing them? I would have a client give the nuts and bolts of the case to see if the fiduciary could take it on. I would ask them what's their specialty, or if they do have a specialty, I would ask them what their cost is, although our costs throughout the industry are within range and everybody kind of falls within that. A lot of people ask how long you've been in business, but to be honest with you, I don't know if that's that big a deal because a lot of fiduciaries come from such great backgrounds. CEOs of companies or an attorney that doesn't want to do legal work anymore. In your case, a master's in counseling. Exactly. And I worked in a psychiatric hospital for eight years. So a lot of us, I think our experience, that might be a question, but I don't think that's a deal breaker. Ask them what type of cases that they like. If you're interviewing somebody, what's your specialty? What kind of case would you like? If somebody calls me and says, I have a business to run, I say, oh, let me go get somebody for you. Being open and honest about it. Again, acting in the best interest of the client. 
Exactly. And the other thing is when you're interviewing a fiduciary, be as honest and open as you can be. I have a business that I need to run. My son's in it, my daughter's in it, and they don't get along to be as clear as possible on the situation going forward. This is somebody who's new to you and you want to make sure it's a fit. Also that you communicate well together. Right. Definitely. And the other thing too is attorneys will recommend fiduciaries and it might not be the exact fit and that's fine. I work with a lot of attorneys and they know that they can be as honest and give me the good, bad, and ugly and I'll take it most some of the time I'll take the case and it's neither here nor there because I understood going in what was going on. It's very clear that people should really prep before they interview you or any other fiduciary. Really think it through, make a list of the things you think they should know. And is there anything they should bring with them besides that list of questions or a list of information? Yeah, they should bring a copy of their trust to let the fiduciary read it. When I get a phone call of a potential client, I always explain to bring a copy of the trust. A trust is instructions for fiduciaries to complete the wishes of the people that are making the trust or the trustors. We will not know how to do our job because each trust is different without reading the trust. So most fiduciaries, before they'll accept a case, want to read the trust. A lot of times people don't understand why and will get offended but it's just so we can understand what the wishes are and make sure that we can follow the instructions in the trust. What if they don't have a trust? Then that's the best situation for a fiduciary because a lot of times what happens is an attorney that drafts the trust, they look at it in a particular way and things that are important to the administration of the trust a lot of times they don't think to put that in there. So if we're in at the very beginning, for example, a client interviews me, wants to work with me, has an attorney, the attorney and I will work together on the drafting the trust. Here's the biggest stumbling block, successor trustees. I have a client right now that I ended up having to go to court. Just so people understand successor trustee. So when someone passes away, or if they lose capacity, or if they don't want to do it anymore, they can put it down to the successor trustee. Got it. It's whoever takes over next. Exactly. Okay. So I had to go to court. The family all wanted me. They all signed off on me, but the trust instrument did not allow me to become the trustee because it says the bank can name the next trustee. Banks don't do that. So if the attorney would have worked with a fiduciary, they would have known all that and we could have modified it a little bit. I had to go to court to get what's called special instructions or the blessings of the court that says, everybody wants you to be the trustee, you can do it. Cost money. If they would have done it correctly or they would have modified the succession plan, it would have been a lot easier. So that's an example of getting a fiduciary involved. We will look at, so what's the succession plan for the trustees? Well, this is how, oh, no, no, no. And then we get that modified before it's even written. Why were you drawn to this work? Because I love helping people. 
And I worked at a psychiatric hospital as a therapist for eight years. And because of the system and the insurance, I couldn't get the treatment that I wanted for my clients because I was at the mercy of, quote unquote, the system and the insurance companies. I was going to go to law school and decided not to. So now I work with attorneys. I work with judges. I work with the law. But I really feel given the clout of being a fiduciary, I can help families in a more productive way. My hands aren't as tied. And I love working with families. And really do what's best for them, even when they don't want you to do it or others around them don't want you to. But at least you really can go home at the end of the day and know that your clients, whether they like it or not, are in the best situation for them, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, Donna, this has been a great discussion. I learned a lot and I thought I knew a lot already, but I always learn from people like you who I get to interview. I, I feel it's a great honor. So thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to How to Move Your Mom and still be on speaking terms afterward. Please visit howtomoveyourmom.com for more information about this episode and for additional podcast episodes featuring other extraordinary guests and conversations. Until next time, this is your very grateful host, Marty Stevens-Hebner.